Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. G'day, it's Jason Stevens, and welcome to the Spirit of Sport on 1170 SEN. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you've had a great week, and I uh, hope you're enjoying the program. We've had some great athletes uh, share their stories. Uh, Steve Ward, Justin Langer, Margaret Court, and there's plenty more to come, like my next guest this evening, who's a speed skater, whose name has become synonymous with fluky success when he collected the most unlikely unthinkable gold medal in the history of the Olympic Games. But let me tell you, that golden moment in 2002 was anything but a fluke. His story is one of determination, pain, setbacks, sacrifice and life-threatening injuries. There's good reason why he was inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. You may have even seen him on a a postage stamp, may have licked the postage stamp. I'm not going to go there, but there you go. He's been on the postage stamp, the 45 cent. His book, Last Man Standing, is an absolute page turner. Never been a more appropriate title either, as you'll find out. And I've also had the privilege of speaking before him and listening to one of his motivational talks. Very funny, very powerful. But there's more. He's uh, he's also got a film in development about his life, written by one of Australia's most prolific screenwriters, Stuart Beatty, you might know him from a film called, it's just a little film, Pirates of the Caribbean or Collateral with Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx. Yeah, just, just a small little film there that won an Academy Award. Stephen Bradbury, welcome to the Spirit of Sport. Yeah, g'day, Jay. Thanks for having me along, mate. Uh, pretty cool to be having a chat with an NRL legend as well, mate. And oh, Yeah, mate. I'm probably the only one out of us who that can lick the back of his own head, though. <laughs> I didn't want to go there, but I remember, I remember <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, I do remember that you had the, was it the 45 cent stamp, was it? The- oh, 45 cents makes me sound like I'm about 75 years old, <laughs> doesn't it? Stamps have gone up a hell of a lot quick. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, whatever, it's, it's an amazing achievement. Now, before we get into it, and thank you again for coming on, but uh, we have some getting to know you type questions, so whatever comes to your mind first, okay? Shoot. Here we go. First concert? In excess. Oh, great one to start with. It's only downhill from there, but yeah, great one. Sydney Entertainment Centre when I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, first job? Uh, packing potato bags at the fruit shop. Most embarrassing moment? Uh, I was doing fitness testing once at the uh, New South Wales Academy of Sport at Narrabeen, and they had it in a, there was a treadmill. One of my teammates was seeing how fast he could run on the treadmill, what top speed he could get to, yeah. and it was a really wide treadmill, like a metre and a half or whatever, and he was across to one side, and I thought, well, I'll jump on next to him and see if I can run next to him at the same time, and he's doing like 31, 32 kilometres an hour, and I jumped on the side of it and got spat all the way across the the, uh, the lab <laughs> testing area and uh, and into a bookcase of shelves and the whole shelves all crashed around me and there was, all, there was some big weeks from the Australian Olympic Committee there and everyone was testing themselves laughing. Oh, that's a YouTube, you got that on YouTube, you would have made a fortune, mate. If, you, if someone would have filmed that, it would have went viral, that's awesome. What's your favourite movie? Highlander. Oh, wow. 
remember the old ones with uh, with Christopher Lambert when they first come out? It, it first got me into uh, into Queen as well. I, it was one of the first albums I bought was Queen, the Kind of Magic album, which was the soundtrack to the first Highlander movie. Well, my first album was Boy George Culture Club, so we're on the same wavelength there, mate. On the same wavelength. <laughs> <laughs> Pet hate. Oh, uh, oh, you know that that English lady's voice that comes on the on the map thing when you put it on in your car. Oh, I love that, that voice. Horrible lady's voice. Really? That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she drives me crazy. I got to turn her down, and the Uber guys have her on all the time. So, <laughs> oh, it's such an elegant. I love the English. You don't like. <laughs> oh no, I can't stand that lady's voice. Mate, I remember when I was single. I was single for fourteen years. You got to remind me. I used to put that on just to get some conversation with her. Just to hear a different girl's voice. It was a sad state of affairs, but anyway, we won't we won't go there. A person from history you'd like to have met. Oh mate, this is probably a bit of a left field one, but uh, I wouldn't mind asking a few questions to uh, Pablo Escobar. Oh yeah, you've seen all yeah. the uh, Netflix stuff, eh? Yeah, there'd be some uh, interesting conversation there about how you how he managed to uh, create a global drug cartel. Gee, that's it. That's... Not, that, not that I want to go down that road myself, but anyway. <laughs> Did you keep a really close uh, eye on it when the, with the Sean Penn and, the, you know, the whole saga that, that impended from from him meeting him? And Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've seen a little bit about that, but you, know, you just spiked my interest to go and have a look at some more of that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Something you wished you were better at, apart from, oh, tre- apart from treadmill running. <laughs> <laughs> that's easy. Golf. Yeah, oh, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good naturally at most sports, but golf, I'm bloody hopeless. <laughs> it's funny because last week I had to do a, a charity gig at a golf thing, and uh, I told people that, um, you know, I was interviewing you, and one of the guys goes, hey, and he nudged his mate. He goes, "What did I just say to you on the on the course when you had a when you when you fluked that shot?" He goes, "You said I'm doing a Bradbury." <laughs> I'm doing a bravery. It's just amazing how it's embedded in our culture now, but we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, the thing you did growing up that made your parents the most upset? Oh, um, so the street we lived in, uh, Kingsclare Street in Campbelltown, Western Sydney, uh, my brother was the, the youngest out of all the kids in the street, and I used to set it up. We used to play cricket in the street, and... All the kids would have a bat. My brother would always be last. And as soon as it was his turn to bat, everyone would run home. Because I was a prick of an older brother. And my parents hated me for doing that to him. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So he wouldn't get a bat. So he wouldn't get a bat. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's uh, horrible, isn't it? It is, it is. But, mate, you know, you... It's the way it is. It's it's a rough it's a rough world, mate. You're just preparing them. <laughs> What's the, the the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? Probably uh, when there's something that's emotional or big picture that you're talking to someone on the phone about or replying on the email, and you get emotions coming through. I sometimes still forget that I need to sleep on it before I respond. Yeah. Because my responses the next day are so different than what they are when you're typing or talking with emotion. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. Uh, they're so much, they're so much better judged the next day, and yes. you don't get yourself into anywhere near as much hot water. Yeah, put it in drafts. Write it, get it out of your system, but yeah. put it in drafts. Before. Don't send it. <laughs> don't. Amazing, amazing how much you take out it when is. you get to the next yeah, day. Right. <laughs> What's the biggest thing you've been nervous about? Oh, recently, uh, probably when I went on Survivor in 2019, uh, and I reckon it was justified because I really struggled to be myself with the camera on all the time. Yeah, right. That's something that I learned about myself by having the cameras on you 24-7 that I just found it hard to be my natural, easygoing self all the time. So that was with uh, my old teammate, Matty Rogers? No, I was on the next season after you're, him. Oh, you are on the sixth season. Right, right, that's right. Yeah, E.T. Uh, uh, was on there. E.T., sorry, sorry, that's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I got, got on really well with E.T. We're mates now, but there's some other people on the show that definitely wouldn't call me their mate. <laughs> <laughs> how, how could you compare the, uh, the training of that to to what you put yourself through because, you know, you had 14 years of just torturous, you know, training. And, I, you know, I played professionally 14 years as well. So if I could – when I read that about you, how long your career went for, you know, the training came to mind. But how, how can you compare that to to Survivor? Because that, that looked pretty intense. Oh, mate, there's no comparison there. Um, so whilst the, the Survivor thing was, was tough – to me, I felt like every day I was there, I was getting closer and closer to being back in Olympic mode. You know, it was it it, it was never going to break me. So I was kind of disappointed when it didn't last longer because, well, one, because it was a pretty good weight loss program. Uh, <laughs> and, and two, I could really feel all that adrenaline and serotonin start to pump through my veins. And it was, it was really good to know, actually, that my body could could adjust back down because you know, I'm not as fit as I used to be, Jace. Mm. I'm not sure if you're as fit anymore as you used to be when you played. But no, I'm not. It, My wife will attest it, to that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was comforting to know that, you know, because there's a lot of medical that you got to run through before you can go on the show as well. And, uh, you know, my blood pressure was a little bit up, you know, because I don't mind a bit of fried chicken and a beer. In fact, I've got my own beer now, Jace. It's called Last Man Standing. It's Bay Lager. Have you really? Uh, LMSbrewing.com.au and now every uh, Dan Murphy between Cairns and Coffs Harbour no as well way. as uh, a bunch of other bottle shops and bits and pieces around Brisbane. That's fantastic. So, yeah, check, us, check us out at LMS Brewing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was back to the Survivor thing, mate. It was easy. It was gratifying to know that after a couple of weeks of taking all the junk food out of my diet and exercise and just drinking water all the time and rice and beans that my body could really adjust quickly and start to get back to be what it used to be like. Yeah, right, yeah. Because it's been, you know, so long. I've, I, I keep training, but not at the intensity of... of and I've, I've often thought whether I could, you know, because I'm 48, just turned 48 a couple of days ago, happy birthday, whatever. But, yeah, no, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> it, was also, birthday, it was also Elvis's birthday, so it kind of take, takes away the limelight from, from my special day. But uh, all, and and my anniversary because I was smart enough to to put it on the same day as my birthday, so I'd never forget. But um, I, I was actually thinking here whether I because I'm going to do the Sand Hills again, but Cronulla, and I I just didn't know how whether you could go back to the to a similar type, you know, 
obviously you're training full time. It's different, but that's good to know that your body could respond if you give it the time and attention. It was, mate. Yeah. Sandhills at Cronulla. You're bringing back some memories for me there too. Oh, you I remember mean? one of the first times, first times I did them when, when, when I was training back in Sydney when I was a kid and the chafe that I got from running through that salt water, is something I'll never forget. <laughs> You're not really supposed to go down to <laughs> Actually, they say, they used to say sometimes with when we were training, like there was two rules. Um, you, you can't run in other other guys' footsteps because it's cheating. You're getting a bit of leverage and you can't wet your feet in the water because you're getting a bit of, you know, uh, once again, you get your, your, it's helping you. Um, somehow they said it, you know, firmness-wise. Cool off a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and also it gives you a bit of a... A, a firmness under your feet, so you can bound off. So, but I don't yeah. think you're supposed to swim in it because that water was not hygienic. <laughs> it was not, probably explains a lot about you. <laughs> was that back in the uh, crypto sporidium days in the Sydney water? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, mate, let's talk about. Um, like, I've read your book. It's it is it's absolute page turner. I can absolutely see why that uh, there are there are great strides. Um, being made to, to get it into a film, um, and it will happen. And uh, you know, it's got that. It's got shades. Um, as, as it's as inspirational story as as uh, that, that that film. Um, uh, sorry, ride like a girl. Um, I got to say, I think, but with with your one, obviously, it's different story and and so forth. Um, but the emotional punch of, of both of them are, are, you know, very powerful. That did very well at the box office, and, you know, I can see yours doing really, really well. But you can see after reading your book uh, of what really you went through to to just be at that place where you're competing. But let's go to back to the beginning because your dad, uh, John, was a he was a national champ, sp- a, a speed skater. Yeah, well, that's how I got into the sport. It was something that, Obviously, he's never going to be a popular pastime in Australia. But, uh, yeah, my, my dad did it more, I suppose, as a regular hobby. It wasn't an Olympic or a world championship sport back then, but he was passionate about it and he skated, you know, two or three times a week and he raced on Saturday nights at Canterbury Ice Rink and at Prince Alfred Park and whatever. So uh, I followed him into it when I was a kid and I developed a, a passion for it as well. Uh, I remember... Uh, I won the under-13 National Speed Skating Championships when I was 10 years old, and the kid who got the bronze medal also finished last. <laughs> you got to, I've got to say, you've got to be pretty dedicated to, to go into a sport. As a young man, you know, like we're, we're always worried about what other people think, or especially the boys, you know what I mean? Like your mates, what they're thinking. To put on a full Lycra suit. And- oh, yeah, mate, I coughed it. <laughs> yeah. At Camp at Campbelltown High School, you can imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny how how it, re- it all returns. Like you, now you see all these guys, fifty plus, big beer bellies, walking into to the coffee shops, getting off their bike, and they're oh, yeah, the, the, mam- the mammal middle aged men in Lycra. <laughs> and it's like there's obviously no mirrors in the house because has anyone really told you what's going on? Here? But maybe when you get to that age, it's like you don't care about what anyone else thinks. <laughs> and do, they, do they really? Do they really need the lycra? Do I mean, really? <laughs> what does it do? <laughs> I, I remember watching an advertisement um, in the lead up to the 2010 um, Winter Olympic Games, and you kept saying, "What's luck got to do with it?" 
you know, can, can tell us a bit more about the sort of training you did? Because I remember reading in your book, there's an awesome photo in, in 2000 where you broke your neck in a training crash and you have this, is it a halo brace that had sort of had four pins that were screwed to your skull, um, which you had to have regularly tightened and it just looked extremely painful. Yeah, they're, uh, I don't know if they use those halo braces anymore, but they were, they were definitely prehistoric and a little bit morbid. Uh, and now they were too immobilizing neck because I'd had a, had a few fractured vertebrae in there. And yeah, it was, uh, that was a time in my life wearing that thing for a little over two months where I had a lot of time to reflect and, and I'd already competed at the Winter Olympics three times by that point and I hadn't done my best at any of them and it was driving me crazy. So, And I had two and a half months at that point where I thought about the big picture a lot because I had nothing else to do. And I thought, well, when this thing comes off my head, I've only got 16 months of hard work to go to get to my fourth Winter Olympics. So even though I don't really have a realistic chance to win anymore, my best days are already behind me. Wow. If I don't have that one last shot at it, I'm going to kick myself for the rest of my life. So if I've got to die for it, I will. Let's go. So, so how, how are you doing like financially during this this whole time? Because I, I spoke <laughs> spoke not long ago to Margaret Court, and you know, she, back in her day, she was getting like they're playing at Wimbledon, they're getting ten dollars a day, and that was and that was it. But you know, you've you've brought this sport really to Australia on a on a significant level in terms of its awareness. Um, but it, but it, it wasn't that case, you know, before really you before your your, your great win. So how how were you doing? How, was it was it a tough journey, like to, to make ends meet? Well, mate, you can you can imagine the uh, the queue of sponsors lining up for a speed skater from Brisbane. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the only sponsorship deal I had back in the day was with the local supermarket. The deal was whatever I could eat while I was in school was free. Really? But they but they didn't know about it. <laughs> I called it a personal sponsor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mate. So I did it. I did it on an absolute shoestring, and you know I was doing it because I had a passion for what I was doing, and I wanted to see if I could be the best in the world. You know, and, and for me, that that mindset kicked in when I was fifteen, and I I fluked my way onto the Australian national team. I went to the World Championships in Amsterdam, and I watched this Japanese skater last name Kawasaki. He passed three skaters on the outside. He broke the 1,000-metre record by 0.8 of a second. He won the event, and I was sitting there on the grandstand, and I said to myself, I'm going to do that. And from that moment, I didn't need my old man to push me anymore because he'd given me a bit of a flogging up to that point, and I didn't like him for it. But uh, he helped me develop a bit of bit of a work ethic, and from that moment, it was wasn't a question of if I was going to the Olympics. It was just where I was going to finish. And so you, you you you've got to like I said to run us through like you you get up you're getting up early are you what kind of training what kind of training and, and how long are you going is it five days a week are you getting weekends off what what run us yeah, through generally I generally I was training morning and afternoon six days a week so twelve sessions a week sometimes with uh, with Wednesday afternoons off as well as Sunday off so, so eleven or could recover. Yeah, 11 or 12 sessions a week. And you now speed skating, most of your training is is over and done with 
reasonably quickly. I mean, in, in the preseason, I was doing about three or four hundred kilometres a week on my bike, uh, and, and getting ready, getting the base load into the system so that your legs can cope with the the high lactic acid anaerobic style training that's required for speed skating. If you haven't got the base first, then your body can't recover when you get to the high intensity work. You know, and the biggest part of speed skating is having the best lactic acid tolerance, meaning that when your legs start to get tired, mm. you don't slow down as quick as the other guys because you've trained harder. Mm. So, yeah, speed skating is a lot about a combination of, of all the different skill sets. You've got to have the aerobic base before you can get the anaerobic intensity. You've got to have a bit of a scientific brain so you can set up your your skates to track correctly and you've got to be physically strong as well to be able to cope with the g-load of of lean, being leaned over at 40 degrees doing over 50 kilometers an hour and i used to be able to i used to be able to leg press over 600 kilos and squat about 240 wow. and speed skaters speed skaters are all uh, all quads and glutes and having carrying any weight on your upper body is uh is useless. Wow, that's that's an enormous amount of weight. That is an enormous amount of, to, to 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 carry, sustain. And you know, the thing I admire, one of the things I admire is that you know, at least with rugby league, when I was playing, like you get a win or a loss every week. There's a result, but you're just training, training, training. I know there's competitions and so forth, but then they're far and few in, in between. And to keep yourself motivated for that. Longer period is it's pretty exceptional. If I can take you to 1992, you're in Albertville, France, for your first Olympic Games. Tell us about that experience. You won your first ever Olympic medal. I was a kid in a candy store at that Olympics, running around, not concentrating on what he was doing, eating the free Big Macs at the Olympic Village, playing the free video game, <laughs> going down to the cafeteria at midnight to get free magnums and really not focusing on the job that I was doing and the results were accordingly. They were terrible. And uh, myself and my teammates, we, we only had a two-year break until the next Winter Olympics because they split them. The Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics up until 1992 used to be in the same year. Right. But it was too expensive for nations to send two Olympic teams in the same year. So the, the Winter Olympics went 92 and then they had them again in 94. So as a team, you know, we'd gone in as the gold medal favourites in the in the relay event in Albertville and we crashed and finished nowhere. Uh, and so we had unfinished business and we definitely had a different approach when it came to all of our second Winter Olympics and were good enough to come home with, with Australia's first Winter Olympic medal, which was a bronze in the relay. But, um, you know, for me personally, I... I had some disappointments in the individual events at that games too, but you know the the big goal for us then was to was to win Australia's first Winter Olympic medal, and you know we had a couple of weeks of, of notoriety when we were able to come back to Australia with that, and you know the guys that I raced with in that team, Andrew Murther, Richard Nazelski, and Kieran Hansen were guys that I all looked up to when I was a kid, and I was lucky at that point in Australia was probably the strongest point in speed skating that Australia had ever had, and I had those guys to chase every day in training. So good, mate. Let me let me take you to to Montreal. 
and you're involved in that. I hope I write this one. You're involved in that. I'm pretty sure I am. That accident that lost you four liters of blood, 111 stitches in your thigh after a terrible crash. Um, can you explain like what happened there? What was what was not only what happened, but what was going through your head once you seen like four liters of blood? It's just a, a, an enormous amount. So it's really life threatening. Yeah, well, that was one of the biggest, maybe the biggest defining moment in my life. I was 21, and I got impaled on the back of another guy's skate doing 50 kilometres an hour. Uh, his blade went clean through my right leg and ripped, back, ripped straight back out. And when you, you know, the, the hole that was in my leg, I needed both hands to try and squeeze my leg back together. Wow. I couldn't do it with one hand because the hole was too big and the blood was like somebody turning on the tap full ball. And, you know, the pain was ridiculous, but the pain was secondary when you actually think you're going to die. And in those moments, I remember the medical team was pretty quick, but I remember lying, lying there on the ice and I thought, well, if I lose consciousness... I'm going to die. And it really is amazing the amount of power that any human can draw upon when they're put into a life and death situation like that because uh, I said, I'm not losing consciousness. No way. And and I made a pact with myself there because I knew if I did, I wasn't going to wake up. So I forced myself to remain conscious. And, you know, there was a lot of moments in there that, enabled them to keep me alive and uh, one of them was because I'd I'd been through the medical for the Olympic team earlier that year and part of the medical is blood test and they so you know what your own blood type is Mm. and if it wasn't for that test I wouldn't have known what my own blood type was and they were running me down the the, uh, hallway in the hospital to go straight into theatre and one of the doctors or nurses I was just still conscious. They said, you don't happen to know what your blood type is, do you? And I had just enough to tell them I was O positive. And they said, you might have just saved your own life because they didn't have time. They didn't have time to go and do a test and figure out what my blood type was because by that time I may not have had anything left. I would have been dead already. So they wheeled me straight into theatre and they started pumping me full of some Canadian blood O positive. Far out. That's that's phenomenal. That is that is phenomenal. I mean, obviously, I'm a person of faith, and I like to think there was some divine intervention there um, for the, all those circumstances leading to you. But did you ever think of that next realm or anything when you were in that place? Did you ever did you ever think? Do you, I don't know. I don't. Know, I've never talked to you about this at all. But did you ever? You know, because a lot of people say that their life sometimes does flash a bit before their eyes or sometimes there's a strange peace that comes over them. One of the, the skaters that we had, um, Iona uh, Rosalie, she she just said, because she had a pretty horrific incident, and she said this peace came over. She wasn't a believer or anything at that stage, but, um, yeah, she said this, this peace came over her. And, yeah, did anything, any of those type experiences or was it? I kind of, you know, I still kind of think that Firstly, it was incredibly unlucky 
to be in that exact exact space at that time at 50 kilometers an hour. I managed to get myself skewed on the back of another guy's blade. Yeah. You know, that's almost impossible to get yourself into that position where that can happen. So that was incredibly unlucky. But, you know, from there to have all the pieces fall into place where the, the doctor from the Canadian speed skating team, he happened to have a tourniquet in his, in his medical kit, which, you know, they got that onto my leg very quickly and, and, and virtually stopped the blood loss after about a minute. Wow. And so, you know, if I had a bled for another 10 seconds without the tourniquet, I would have had no blood left as well. So, you know, there was a lot of pieces that fell into place there very quickly. You know, if that crash had happened in, in Russia or China, I'd have been dead. Mm. But, you know, I, I think for me, it, you know, it, it really reinforced that I had a lot of unfinished business in the sport. And I was kind of able to use the whole ordeal as a little bit of a positive going forward because if you look hard enough at anything, you can find a positive. You know, 2020 has been a pretty crappy year for most people. Yeah. You know, doing what I do in the speaker and entertainment business, my <laughs> I went from 100% to zero in about 48 hours and it doesn't look like it's coming back anytime soon. And we're nearly a year later. Yeah. But, you know, I was able to, to draw on the positive in that when I came back to the sport, if I was having a hard day in training and the lactic acid was building up in my legs and it felt like it was too hard, well, I'd try and think back when I was lying on the ice in Canada with three quarters of my blood spilled around me and bad day in training wasn't so hard anymore. I mean, that, that to me, if I put myself in that position where, you, you know, you, you, you have that horrific injury, I mean... The fear to overcome is is the mental f- side of it is something that I'd, li- I'd like to know how you overcome because uh, came it because you know like to get back on the ice was there any fear and trepidation I mean because it's you know there's not many sports to be honest with you that you could you know really potentially die from when you when you go back out there but yours was freakishly one of them and then to get back on the saddle. How did you mentally, you know, pr- prepare for that? Oh. There's a, there's a long, I've always been a big heavy metal fan, Jake, and there's a, there's a couple of lines from a band that is one of my favourites, Anthrax. Uh, there's a, a, band, a line that they use in one of their songs called Perpetual Motion, and the line is, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And the only thing about the only thing about fear is fear itself. So, but you, but you like, but but so there wasn't any part of you that that really revisited that often. You just put it. You just said, "No, nah, I'm just going for it," and and block, sort of just let that experience. You've had it, but I'm moving on from it, and just it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that you. You know, uh, like, unfinished, unfinished business there, mate. Unfinished and, uh, business. Yeah. Well, I'm it, glad you it, did. It came down to uh, being pretty stubborn, which uh, the Bradbury family genes got a lot of stubborn in it, always has. Uh, uh, maybe being a little bit naive because that crash happened when I was 21. Uh, and, you know, you know what you're like when you were 21. You think you're invincible and nothing can stop you. Uh, and for me, that was exactly how I felt. And, you know, I, I knew that I was going to skate again. It's, uh, you know, that... Muscle injuries also heal pretty quickly. They're not like a broken bone where you've got to sit in a cast for 
for a couple of months. Uh, I was on the ice in, in three weeks, and you know I, I raced at the at the World Championships four months later. Now, mate, let's go to the Winter Olympic Games, Salt Lake City, two thousand and two. Can you tell us a bit about the lead up to to that final? You, did you feel you were ready for that that moment? Could you sense anything special happening? Um... Obviously, I hoped for something special before the final, but the most uh, satisfying moment of that whole night for me in short track speed skating, you do the heats, the quarterfinals, the semifinal, and the final all within about an hour and a half. So it's not like a lot of other sports where you, you race the heats in the morning like in swimming and you come back and you do the finals at night or you get a day off in between like in, in athletics. Uh, you're doing all the events back-to-back and, you know, for me as the oldest skater, not just in the final, oldest in the entire Olympic field at my fourth Olympics. Before the final, I, you know, I kind of knew that I didn't have the lactic acid tolerance anymore to back up four times in an hour and a half. I'd already done everything I wanted to do with that Olympics. In the quarterfinals, I beat a bloke from Canada by the name of Mark Gagnon. He's four-time world champion. I had beaten that bastard for eight years. <laughs> and uh, he's actually a pretty good guy. But, you know, for me to beat him in the quarterfinals, I remember sitting there in the change room after the quarterfinals. And I, thought, I came to this Olympics to skate my best because I hadn't done it in the first three. And what I just did in that quarterfinal... Everything there was perfect. I can't say any better than that. Wow. And that feeling that washed through my body in that qu- after that quarterfinal in the change room of ultimate personal satisfaction, that was a highlight of my life. So the gold medal has nothing to do with it. And, you know, for anyone out there who's listening who's feeling like they've had a pretty ordinary 2020, then maybe my advice is, well, you might need to downsize a little bit because I certainly have. And when my business was taken away, when COVID hit and my income drawn to zero, I was a pretty negative prick for a couple of weeks and not a good bloke to be around. And I went out and I did something that I've never done before. I bought a hedge trimmer. I downsized enormously and I borrowed my dad's second lawnmower. I've never known why my dad's had two bloody lawnmowers all his life, but he always had. I've never done my own garden, ever. I just did so, one yesterday. <laughs> so now I do my own gardens and my hedges have never looked better and I get that little bit of personal satisfaction every time I look at them. Yeah. And it's a it's downsized massively, but you got to start somewhere. So if you're listening to this and you can't remember the last time you got some personal satisfaction, it's time to go get some. Well, you know, uh, an, a, a really good Brisbane boy who – who uh, you might have heard of, Johnny Lang, who was a coach uh, yeah. with, uh, you know, the Sharks. I had him there and, of course, a Queensland legend as well and took Penrith to the comp. He uh, he used to do his lawn, even though he was he was coaching and busy. And, and I, I used to do my lawn. And I remember one day going, oh, I better go back and do the, do the lawn. He goes, let me just tell you something, Jace. If you're doing your own lawn, it's a very good problem to have. Just think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never since then, like I've never um, taken it for granted, and I've, I've always had a good attitude when I've done the lawn because I'd say I've got my own house. It's a great problem to have. Do you know what I mean? And just be thankful for what I have, as distinct from, 
you know the the, the bumps and the the bruises and all that type of stuff. It's a it's a great attitude. I thought I've, I've kept it with me um, with Johnny. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I had started a bit earlier on that front. But, uh, <laughs> did you watch? Uh, did you watch the uh, Chicago Bulls thing? I, what was it called? The, I did. I did the last dance. The last dance. Yeah, there, there was that one episode in there where they were talking about Larry Bird when he moved. Then he moved to Detroit. I think it was, and uh, he was on some ridiculous $13 million a year or something. And uh, he used to get a crowd of people out in front of his house every weekend filming him mowing his own lawn. That's right. <laughs> i got to say, if I if I probably had that kind of coin, I, I'd probably delegate that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, that was great. I know, that was that was, that was really good. I, I loved it. That was a f- fantastic series, wasn't it? Like the coaching, you know, that... The you know they were at another level in the states. I think you know don't you think like in terms of their input from coaches and just the resources and you know compared to what particularly a bloke on like yourself who's really hand solo in many ways like motivating yourself and that's why it's really it's 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 it makes it all the more extraordinary your win um, and the fact that you 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 become an overnight sensation and pretty much. You know, instantly. You know, were you? How did you handle that? Were you sort of ready for that for that attention? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, going from a, a speed skater training in the back blocks of Brisbane at Acacia Ridge in complete anonymity to becoming probably Australia's most recognisable person overnight around uh, the world, was, really around the world. Well, was a shock to the system, to say the least. And yeah, right. I remember I flew back from the Olympics on business class. I'd never even seen business class before, <laughs> let alone sat in the seat. And uh, and I'm walking up the gangway of the plane after I've landed in Brisbane, and at the end of the gangway, I can see hundreds of people and cameras and lights, and I thought, there must be someone famous on this flight. And then I stopped, <laughs> and I went, "Oh shit! It's I you. think it's me." <laughs> and yeah, it was a uh, it was it was certainly a whirlwind couple of years after that point. And for me, it was it was something that I'd been training my guts out, you know, five hours a day, six days a week for fourteen years, and no one wanted to know. And then everyone wanted to know, and I had plenty to tell. Well, mate, I've heard you speak live, and you know, for anyone, any corporates out there listening, it's it's you know, once obviously things resume, uh, any corporates, mate, I'm going cheap at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> can you still do what you can still do it all by uh, by Skype or, or, or Zoom? Or, I imagine. Yeah, there's a little bit of that virtual stuff out there, mate. But yeah, it doesn't really have the same. No, it doesn't have the yeah. same punch. But it was it was it was exceptional, mate. You, you couldn't hear a pin drop in your whole presentation, apart from. The, the laughter because you got a great sense of humor and real Aussie sort of American type stuff, but um, yeah, now so if there's any any people listening out there, and I really hope it bounces back for you. Yeah, me too, mate. StephenBradbury.com.au. Now, two thousand two Olympic Games have come and gone. I talk a lot to athletes about retirement. Um, how did how did you transition yourself? Well, mine was mine was certainly different than most. Um, I knew that that Olympics in Salt Lake City, win, lose or draw, was was the end. Mentally, I 
struggle to even get to that fourth Olympics. And physically, my recovery wasn't what it used to be. So uh, being able to compete was and do my best at the Games was extremely gratifying, as I mentioned. But, yeah, retirement was a... Probably for two years, mate, I drank too much. Uh, I hadn't really partied through my youth because I'd been training for the Olympics the whole time. Yep. And I'm 28. I've come back to Australia now as a celebrity, which is a word that I hate because anyone who thinks they're a celebrity, well, I certainly don't think I'm one, but it's a strange word. And everybody in Australia wanted to buy me a drink. And I suppose I was pretty happy to accept them there for a while. And like athletes do, I pushed myself pretty hard down that road as well. And I was still pretty fit. I had pretty good recovery, so I went hard at it. And that was a downward spiral there for a while. And I always planned on becoming a firefighter. And once money, I suppose, and sponsors and speaking at conferences and all that sort of thing started to come really easy for me for a couple of years. Maybe I got a little bit complacent and carried away with it all there as well for a while because I'd never had money in my life and now I had a fair bit of it and I had some notoriety and I was having fun and I didn't really worry too much about what was going to happen next. I didn't take up the job offer with the fire brigade which I'd always wanted to do. And and I got to a point a couple of years later where I met my now wife, Amanda. We've been married 13 years. We've got three pretty amazing kids. And she sort of helped me downsize a little bit again because I'd done something pretty big in my life by winning Australia's first Winter Olympic gold. And if I weighed it all up, well, I've probably done the biggest thing in my life that I'm ever going to do when I'm 28. Mm. So I had to downsource and she helped me break things down. And that was where I actually turned my brain back on again and stopped being a bit of a dickhead. And I said to myself, well, geez, I'm, um, I'm getting paid pretty okay to, to go and speak at conferences and events. And, Am I really that good at it? Mm, I'm all right. I've done a little bit of work. I've got a half-decent keynote presentation together, but, geez, I could be a lot better at this, and what would happen if I did? So I started working with a professional speechwriter and a comedian, stopped drinking, and really started getting my act together. And, you know, people told me that I'd better go and find a real job because you can't be a speaker for the rest of your life. And then I started approaching speakers bureaus and finding the right people and it went from something that I was doing two gigs a month to two or three gigs a week pretty quickly and became a full-time job which has been the case for the last 15 years until COVID came along. Wow. You, you mentioned uh, Amanda in, in your book and I love how you speak speak about her and how did you how did you how did you meet can you tell us a little bit about that how did you propose are you a romantic guy? <laughs> Are you a romantic guy? Uh, I did pretty well on the proposal front. Uh, we were at the uh, at the Winter Olympics where I was commentating in uh, Torino in Italy, 
they had the International Olympic Club, which was up on a balcony overlooking the piazza. And that night had about, I think it had about 12,000 people in the piazza down below, and they had they had some medal ceremonies there earlier, and then Pavarotti was on. And I cordoned off this tiny little balcony up in the Olympic Club that overlooked the piazza with some uh, with two glasses of champagne and some strawberries, and I had the ring and all that, and I proposed to her there. The 16,000 people below and Pavarotti playing oh, in a palace. <laughs> that's, mate, that's... That's a proposal. <laughs> That's hard to beat for anyone listening. Mate. That's exceptional. Are you a, were you a Pavarotti fan? Nah, not really. No, I'm not. As I mentioned, man, I'm wearing my heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what, what's what's have you seen any recent? But obviously, pending, you know, notwithstanding the last year. But do you, do you regularly go to concerts and stuff like that? No, yeah, I still love to get out and see live music. Yeah, I went and seen a. A uh, couple of punk bands in Brisbane in uh, in 2019 before everything was was shut down. Uh, I went and saw uh, Alice in Chains not that long ago, which was yeah an old school band that came through with Nirvana and Pearl Jam out of the yes out of yes. the out of the Seattle grunge scene back in the day. Well, mate, we say, we share a lot of similarities in our sporting journey, uh, but. Musically, <laughs> not on the musical side. Eh? <laughs> I went and saw Rick. What's Ast- your genre, Rick, mate? Rick Astley was my first concert <laughs> <laughs> after, after Boy George. <laughs> after Boy George. <laughs> Never got to see Boy George live, but I, but I did see Rick Astley twice, which is basically it was the same album twice. <laughs> but mate, you also did just quickly before we leave. How was it? Because I did Dancing with the Stars. I had a shocker. Uh, oh, likewise, mate. I was the first. I was the first one out. What about you? First one out as well. Oh, 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 high five, mate! <laughs> Virtual high five. <laughs> it, to be honest with you, that's been. Well, I thought you might say that earlier on. That's been the most nervous thing I've ever done. I like, you know, you, with Origin, with with playing for Australia, Grand Finals, and all that, which is nerve wracking. But with Dancing with the Stars, that was the most nervous I've ever been. I don't know about you. Um, I can glide on skates, but I can't glide on the dance floor. That's been proven. <laughs> Todd McKenney gave me three out of ten. <laughs> but where is three. he now? Where is he now? <laughs> well, mate, uh, thank, look, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I just want to encourage people out there, um, you know, Last Man Standing, it's, it's an amazing book. From 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 the first page to the very end, it, it's a real t- page turner. And, gee, I look forward to... To seeing that film come out, it's it's. Uh, I know it's going to happen. I reckon there's some some pretty heavy hitters involved in it, and we we won't say too much. But uh, it's exciting to see Aussie Aussie stories like yours on film because you know yours is obviously it's a great Aussie story, but it does I believe have the ability to go beyond uh, Australia because it's such a a universal story in a sense, and it'll encourage people to to never give up. And you, you've sent me a book um, signed, Never Give Up, and I I. You know, it's 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 so tempting, especially in this current environment, to give up. To be honest with you, and I, I think your your story is is the perfect perfect example of someone who's just said, no matter what, I'm not giving up. Because if you gave up, there's no Steve Bradley winning that gold. I tell you what, if you you had so many reasons, so many reasons to call it a day, and no one would have argued. You almost died. <laughs> 
<laughs> you, you broke your neck. <laughs> I mean, there's so much that happened to you where you go, oh, I think that's enough. Uh, but no, you, you stood firm and, mate, as a former athlete as well, hats off to you, mate, because that's, that's as tough as they come. Yeah, mate, I'm really looking forward to, hopefully, the movie seeing the light of day. The, the title for it's simply going to be called Bradbury. And with my story, the thing that I probably like about it the most, even though, you know, I don't really think anything I've done is that great. I'm pretty always been pretty hard on myself. But the uh, my story is one that the average bloke on the street I don't think they can attest to be Michael Phelps or Kelly Slater or Valentino Rossi because they're just, you know, above the average person's ability. But a bloke like me who trained his guts out at something for a long time without, without, you know, the budget behind him and all that, the average bloke can attest to giving everything he's got to something for a long time and maybe putting them putting themselves in a, in a spot in a future one day where they can do a Bradbury too. <laughs> I'll I'll, uh, I'll give an amen to that, mate. So thank you so much for your time, and uh, I know you've got a family to get back to, and three lovely kids, and a beautiful wife. So, mate, yeah, I hope you, you get back on that circuit soon enough because it's uh, for me it's it's such an inspiring message. It's one that we these times need ne- uh, now more than ever. Steve, thanks so much for your time. All right, Jake. Good luck with the the movie making and the acting and all that yourself too? No, no acting, mate. I've, I've, you've seen my face. It's it's better behind the camera, mate, but thank you. Oh, you were, you were good on the footy show. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. It was some, some good memories, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and if anyone else is, uh, thank you all for listening and uh, to, to this interview. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you've missed it, of course, uh, you can you can listen the following week uh, at uh, 5:30 a.m. Sunday morning, but we also have it on the 11:70 SEN Catch Up app, uh, and so there's all the great interviews there with with Steve Waugh, Margaret Court, Justin Langer, Big Brad Thorne, Brad Mackay, uh, and so many more great interviews to come. Thanks again, Steve Bradbury, and have a great week. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Week, everyone.